Hello everyone, and welcome to the Movie Shed Podcast. I am, of course, your cinema-loving, shed-dwelling host, Mike. Oh my. Well, it looks as though we've got Halo TV, Amazon's Lord of the Rings is still on its way. Yay. So... This is why I wanted to talk about this. The the kind of hubris of the showrunners of late. Uh, Let's look back. Let's use uh, Halo TV, since it's fairly recently released. Well, at least episode one, two should be out by now. Let's just talk about it for a moment. Now, the Halo showrunners made made a statement saying that, uh, you know, we actually never bothered to look at the video game. Never bothered. Didn't bother with it. We wanted to create our own thing. And this got a lot of fans really up in arms. And now, of course, a number of critics, some are going, I don't know, this might not be a good idea. And others applauding it saying, you know, hey, fine, that's absolutely great. Why bother with that stuff anyway? Well, here's here's kind of the problem. And this is endemic to a lot of things, from Halo TV to Amazon's Lord of the Rings, uh, Star Trek Discovery, and Picard, just to name a few. The problem is, is that the various studios and groups that greenlit these projects, they greenlit them because there is a fan base. It's a built-in fan base. Duh. Because of this built-in fan base, they're not nearly as risky as, say, something that's brand new. Something brand new, out-of-left-field kind of story. Story and characters. So with less inherent risk because of a built-in audience, they're more than willing to greenlight such a project. The problem is you take on a bit of baggage when you do that. When you take on a beloved IP and you want to do something with it, you have to bear in mind that that built-in audience is there based on what they've already consumed. In the case of Halo TV, this was, of course, the video games. There was a lot of games and a lot of lore, and a lot of people became very big fans. When it came to, you know, Amazon's Lord of the Rings, there were, of course, the books, and then Peter Jackson's films. It's kind of two distinct camps, really. There's some who are solely fans of the books and some solely fans of Jackson's work and there's a bit kind of like a Venn diagram there's a few in the middle that like both but uh, that's that's just the thing that you have to work with these are the kinds of fans you're going to be interacting with and trying to win over so when I heard about the uh, little I, I would like to call it a gaffe, but it's not. It, this was a well-thought-out statement that they were not interested in the video games of Halo, and they wanted to make their own thing. And this was very clear. This is what he said. 
or she's I don't remember who who the showrunner is. Doesn't matter. The the problem is is that you have that built-in fan base who have consumed all of this lore on these video games. And you're turning around and telling them, nah, it's stupid. It's it's not worth our time. We're not interested. We want to make our own thing, but we're going to give it this kind of halo paint job. Yeah, how do you expect fans to react to that? Not well. I can't imagine anyone going, no, this is a good idea. Right, right. Sure it is. <laughs> Uh-huh. No, it's a bad idea. It's really a bad idea. You want to be able to... I realize that with when it comes to being a showrunner or a director or a writer, the last thing you want to be is shackled to the whims of a particular fan base. Because no matter how hard you try, you will never please some of them. That's true. It's very true. There are those who, like with the Lord of the Rings movies, Peter Jackson's films, there were fans of Tolkien's work that were absolutely livid about some of the changes that he made. What they really wanted was the books transported word for word onto screen, which is impossible. It really is. It's really impossible to do that. So you're going to have to accept that there are some fan losses. But by bl going out there and blatantly telling that fan base what you enjoyed, what made you a fan to begin with, is completely irrelevant. Completely irrelevant to what we want to do. Really shows that you have no idea what in the hell you're doing. Because when you go and you're absolutely just throwing away any all the stuff that made these fans fans to begin with you you are showing that you have no idea of how to handle this fan base and the sad fact is is that a lot of directors a lot of writers a lot of showrunners in general generally don't know how to deal with a built-in fan base unless they were involved with this particular IP before. They don't know how to deal with it. So it just... It's not... Okay, so here, here's my, my particular thought on this, is that when uh, you have this fan base built into a franchise, the reason that they can't deal understand how to deal with them is because quite often... As you know, a showrunner, as a writer, you're kind of told to ignore it, mainly because you're taught to create new things, new ideas, new IPs. So there is no fan base. So there's no kind of built-in uh, training involved when it comes to how to deal with a built-in fan base. If you made a film and it's a hit and it generates fans. Well, you know what the fans wanted because your interesting idea got fans. It's different when you're coming into something that has a large fan base and you don't understand it. And unfortunately, a lot of these showrunners, like with the Halo TV series, uh, didn't just 
not understand Halo and its fans, they ignored Halo's fans and ignored what made them fans to begin with. This is this is the height of hubris, really, in that we're going to come into an IP that you all, you know, know and love, and we're going to do our own thing by completely ignoring everything that made you really like love it. Because, really, we're looking at it as you're just interested in the cool visuals. And then we're going to come along and tell a real adult story. How condescending is that? Uh, Amazon's Lord of the Rings, it has its it had its moments when they were like, ah, you know, we're going to go ahead and we couldn't possibly imagine not telling this story without injecting some of the things going on in our world into it. Now, you see, when you're making a your own story, your own series of characters, you're more than... You can do that. It's perfectly reasonable, perfectly logical that you would do that. But when you're taking something that's been established and then shoehorning things and themes into it that were never in it to begin with, then it becomes a problem. I think this... And this was a, a great thing that was brought up in a number of, well... Internet arguments. <laughs> That's that just was. We'll call it as we see it. These were internet arguments, and the people attacking the Amazon Lord of the Rings didn't quite have the ability to articulate why they didn't like it, and those that were defending it were not exactly doing a great job either. Both are just kind of flailing at one another. So. If you're that person who, <clears throat> excuse me, if you're that kind of person who looks at Amazon's Lord of the Rings and sees nothing wrong, I am directing this to you. The reason why the various things that the showrunners of Amazon's Lord of the Rings is what they're doing is foolish, foolhardy, and smacks of a type of condescending arrogance. The reason why people are reacting to the various things is that, like, the whole idea of a female dwarf not having a beard and kind of poking on that is part of a larger problem. You see, that larger problem is that the showrunners are not only ignoring parts of the lore, they're completely destroying parts of the lore in order to make it fit their story. I want you to think about this very carefully for me. With the character of Galadriel, in the books and stories, she is considered a very powerful character, but she's not physically powerful. She's powerful in that she has this kind of magical aura about her. She's quite an old elf. She's been around for quite some time. She has seen a lot of things, the deep pools of ancient wisdom that was described by Tolkien when one looked into her eyes. This is someone who has been in this world and has seen many things and has gained the most powerful attribute you can imagine, and that is wisdom. 
She is incredibly wise. She has this ability for foresight, the mirror of Galadriel. So she's able to see the potential possibilities of what could happen, good and ill. And she is using the powers of her ring, the her forged ring, to keep her people not only together, but to keep them safe from the encroaching darkness. That takes an incredible amount of not physical strength, but mental strength and the force of will that's keeping it all together. And unfortunately, what the showrunners decided to do was that they needed a checkbox. So they made her a strong, you know, strong female character who don't need no man kind of character. That's not Galadriel. It really isn't. Galadriel is not someone who goes out onto the battlefield. She's the one that's there at home holding it all together by sheer force of will alone. I find that to be a much more compelling and stronger character. Someone who, on the surface, is totally serene and quiet, but in the back of their minds, they've got to be just struggling through all of these choices, desperately trying to figure out how to hold it all together. It makes her a far more interesting character that way. Putting her in armor, giving her a sword, and sending her out into the world, unlike his angry, rage-filled vendetta ride, cheapens the character. This is the problem. The lore has not just been kind of besmirched. It's been thrown away completely. And if you're not willing to, at the very least, honor the lore, honor what came before, how can we expect you to treat any of it with any kind of respect if you can't respect some of the stuff here? Some of the minor stuff, like the dwarf woman without a beard. That's minor, yes, but that's indicative of what you think of when it comes to the lore. When they're talking about a diverse cast, it's like, you know, hey, when it comes to diversity and inclusion in film, sure, absolutely, I think it's gr- it's a good idea to have as many people as you can to really fill out a film, because in most stories the race or gender of a character is not really relevant. So you can tell whatever story you want with whatever kind of person you want. However, the caveat to that is when you have something that's already been established. When you have established lore, when you have established characters, then you start changing and tinkering with those totally against it totally against it, what has existed, then you're not being progressive. What you're doing is you're destroying what existed. You're not creating new, you're destroying the old. And I know for some people that would be, in fact, a very good idea, but not in this case, because this is a piece of literature work. This is a piece that was done decades and decades and decades ago, almost I mean, it started, you know, over a century ago in the trenches of the Somme. 
So this is something of of a long running work. Someone's life's work. And you're just kind of treating it like toilet paper. Ah, I don't need that part. I don't need this part. I think it should be like this. If you wanted to have a more diverse cast, there were a number of ways you could have gone about that. I want you to think about the lands of Harad and Far Harad. These are places in which people of darker skin, so, you know, you could have, you could have um, Middle Eastern and African descent folks, various actors and actresses portraying that. You could have told that story because there was no story about them. Tolkien himself just kind of, you know, they were there, and that's that's all he does. That's all he says about them, really. It doesn't go into real depth. If you wanted to tell your own story, you wanted to go and do this, there was a good place right there. To the land south and east of Mordor. Some place that Tolkien himself never really bothered. You want to tell a story and you want to include wizards like Gandalf, tell the stories about the blue wizards. What the hell happened to them? All we know is that they appeared, they went east, and then vanished, and no one ever talks about them again. There you go. Great ideas. They also, the showrunners also fell into the habit of like, oh, hey, look, hobbits are really popular, hobbits are really cool, and then they had to shoehorn hobbits into it. When hobbits didn't really have an impact <clears throat> at all as a people at any point in the Second Age. They just didn't. They truly didn't. They didn't make a mark on the world, the history of the world until Gandalf kind of prods Bilbo out the house to go to Erebor. Come on now. Uh, and when it comes to like Star Trek Discovery, they just kind of hold whole cloth reinvented its very, the beginnings of Star Trek in, in ways just prior to um, the original series starting, which, honestly, I, I think was just a bad idea. And plus, they had bad characters. I mean, they had the character of Michael Burnham, who was possibly the most unlikable character on the planet as this is the person you should care about. The only thing I care about is whether or not they're going to stay on this show. And I would rather they weren't. I mean, you know, nothing against the actress, but her character was garbage. And so was the writing. So much of it. There was so much bad writing in that first season and so much backtracking and hand-waving away of prior mistakes that it was borderline ridiculous and Picard was it's just a money grab that's all it is it's a a money grab they didn't read it I mean come on Patrick Stewart has no vested interest in in playing Jean-Luc Picard he was done when they finished when they wrapped up uh, the next generation and he would only show up in minor cameos and in, uh, in the others uh, he was in like at least just one, I think, episode of Deep Space Nine. And then uh, I, he never made an appearance in Voyager. 
And only Jonathan Frakes actually had an appearance in uh, Enterprise. So, yeah, I've, after that, he, I'm pretty sure Patrick Stewart was like, yeah, I'm done with that character. I've done all I could do. And then someone with a truckload of money showed up and said, hey, Stewart, would you like to play Picard again? Here's all this money. And then they gave Patrick Stewart some creative control, which is usually not a good idea. You need, it's fine to have some feedback from your actors, but having creative control from one of your actors, no, bad, 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 bad. <laughs> Usually because that actor wants to try and look as good as possible while doing as little as possible. Well, it was my rant. But this is, this is kind of the thing that I'm talking about. It's the, the hubris of these showrunners. This is what happens. And you get this god-awful mess. And no one, no one likes it. I mean, hell, right now you have peop- you have regular folks watching and you have critics who are going, uh, this Halo TV series, who's it for? It's definitely not for hardcore fans. And for people who don't know anything about Halo, there's so much name-dropping when it comes to Halo lore in there that... They're going to be confused, so who's this for? And that's what you end up with. You end up with something that has lots of callbacks for the, to try and lure those fans, but you've already pissed those fans away by completely ignoring the major important story elements. Well, well. well, I think that's going to be it for me for today. So it's time to close up the old shed, but I will see y'all next time.